0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Finally, it's been, I don't know, like three years since we've had this podcast. And finally, Joseph Goldstein is on the show. I feel a little bit like... Big Bird talking about his best friend, Snuffleupagus, because I've been talking about Joseph Goldstein on every other podcast episode since we started rolling low these many years, and yet he's never come on. But finally, we got him to sit down here in the studio and take some questions, and it was awesome, as you are about to hear. In case you've never heard of Joseph, since we we dive right into questions about meditation and how to practice and how to bring it out into your world in this episode, we don't dive too deeply into uh, his background uh, so let me just give you the the 30-second uh, version of that. Joseph went to Columbia University. Uh, he graduated in the 60s, and that was when the Peace Corps was getting started. He ended up in Thailand. Uh, he was a philosophy major and sort of, sort of got interested in going to a local monastery, a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, to talk to the monks about Buddhist philosophy, and they ultimately got him meditating. And 50 years later, at age 75, maybe more than 50 years later, uh, he went deep, deep, deeply into the practice, spent years and years in Asia as a younger man, studying intensively, came back in the 70s and along with Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg, started a place called the Insight Meditation Society in central Massachusetts, uh, which is a, a fantastic retreat center where Joseph now lives and teaches and works He has also, in his later years, from my opinion, distinguished himself as one of the guiding teachers on the 10% Happier app. Uh, He and Sharon are both the the founding and guiding teachers on on our app, and uh, Joseph has created a ton of content on the app. He's really, along with Sharon, kind of the heart and soul of the thing. Uh, We've done all of these amazing courses where I've gotten to sit down and talk to Joseph and his uh, wisdom, for lack of a less grandiose term, kind of just oozes through the frame. And uh, so I think one of the areas of the, of pride for me, and there are many in this app, is that I'm bringing Joseph's um, awesomeness out in- into the world, both through the videos that we've done and also the hours and hours of guided meditations that he's done for us that are up there. By the way, just a little plug for the app if you want to check it out and you haven't, uh, you can get seven days for free. Uh, One housekeeping note um, about Joseph is that he and I are actually doing a public event together on Thursday, December 5th in New York City. It's a benefit for the New York Insight Meditation Center. Uh, Full link is in the show notes. I encourage you to come check it out. Uh, Another item of business related to Joseph is that in a few days we're going to post a free guided meditation from him in this podcast feed. Final thing I'll say before we dive in here is that I've had an extremely privileged life on many levels. Very lucky dude. Uh, One of the luckiest things uh, that has ever happened to me in this very lucky life is meeting Joseph, befriending him, and having him as my meditation teacher personally. He has had an enormous impact on me. Much of what I do in the world is directly a result of the work I've done with him. So, Joseph, I love you, and thank you for coming on the show. Here we go. We've had more than 200 guests on this show. Celebrities, athletes, scientists, meditation teachers.
1: What am I doing here?
0: All of them been willing to come on this show. I haven't had to twist any arms. And for all that time, I haven't been able to get you on the show. So I, I guess my first question is, why do you
1: hate me so much? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the reason I had to overcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really happy to
0: have you on the yeah. show. I talk about you all the time on the show, so our audience is going to be pleasantly surprised to finally uh-huh. have – you've been like the snuffleupagus of this show. Um, normally, I, I start by asking people how do they get into meditation, but I feel like I forced you to tell that story many times. And earlier today, I, we had Jack right, on, right. and uh, for the listeners, that will actually be several weeks ago before they hear your your interview. So several weeks ago, we had Jack on. And I started, in st- I started with a question that was recommended by two people independently. One is um, bo- both in the 10% Happier Universe. One is Jay Michelson, and the mm-hmm. other is Kara Lai. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So their question was very interesting. I'd be, I'm really interested mm-hmm. to hear your answer to this. What in the teachings is for you right now the most challenging? Where do you have the most trouble applying mm-hmm. mindfulness? <laughs> aside from your distaste for me
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think that uh you know within the buddhist teachings there's a list of 10 qualities which are called the paramis or the perfections of the buddha you know so that there are these qualities of mind that all need to be developed you know for awakening so things like generosity and loving kindness and wisdom and concentration things like that but the one the one parami that <laughs> Needs the most work uh, for me, I think is uh, the Parma of renunciation, and so that's where I see you know when different desires come up in the mind and they can be just small things or you know big thing uh, the tendency of my mind is oh, that looks great, let's go for it <laughs> you know and so those moments no I don't really need that or i don't I don't have to do this you know that moment of Seeing the desire and actually practicing renunciation that's the one that uh, that I'm working on, I think a lot, you know, and every time I do actually not go for the second whatever, or whatever the desire is. Feels like this great moral victory. (laughs) You know, Mara, I've conquered you for this moment anyway. (laughs) So, you should just, who's Mara? Okay, so Mara within the Buddhist teachings is kind of the embodiment of ignorance, of delusion. And so, it's often uh, represented as the tempter or, you know, that that force in the mind that wants to seduce us into attachment and clinging.
0: You've pointed this Mm -hmm. out many times in your. Talks. I've listened to your talks so, and talked to you directly so many times that I'm pretty sure I'm plagiarizing you nonstop. <laughs> I don't feel any guilt about it, but I'm just saying it. Uh, just saying. Yeah, just saying. Um, you have said many times in your talk, you've pointed out that the Buddha who we all think of as, I guess, maybe perfected or something like that, is in the scripture, right there in the scriptures, which are his purported to be his words <laughs> – Saying Mara, I see you. In other words, so the the temptation is still arising for for him in his mind.
1: Well, this this goes to a point of controversy among certainly among contemporary Western Buddhist teachers. I think not quite sure how you know our Asian teachers would have viewed this, but Mara can be understood in two ways from the point of view of the classical teachings, and that is the forces of ignorance in the mind. But also actually as a being, you know, who – so this is the traditional explanation, you know, that that Mara is kind of the king of the highest heaven realm. And his mission is to keep all beings ensnared in the round round of sense delights and sense pleasures. So the classical – So they don't make it to his level? No, they – they could be reborn there, but that's not awakening. That's just a nice vacation, uh, you know, I in see, a pleasant realm. And so he's fine with that or she or whatever whatever gender. Uh, Again, this is the sort of this the classic, Buddhist religious yeah, schema. Yeah. So in that case, you know, when the Buddha says, Mara, I see you, from that interpretation, it's actually in reference to a being – You know, so it's not the force of craving or desire in his own mind. Ah. So that, and this, you know, among contemporary, certainly Western Buddhist teachers, uh, there's a division of opinion about whether it's really like that, whether it's just, Mara is just, you know, a representation of what's in our minds. So that's, One way of understanding it. Where do you fall on this? I tend to lean towards the classical view, since that's my general leaning anyway, of Mara as a particular being. But I could also imagine, but this would be a very interesting and subtle point to engage with someone about, Whether there's a possibility of, for example, desire arising in the mind, but with no hook at all, as, as if it were just another thought, you know, where there was no, no inclination or no conditioning to go for it or to act on it, um, which is a little different and it's different than what some people how some people have interpreted it you know desire arises in the mind but the buddha didn't identify with it so that's one explanation of that mara i see you but i see a subtle distinction between desire arising in the mind where there is real desire but it's not identified with being different than desire just as a thought but there is really no desire in it. there's no There's none of that greed even embedded in that thought. you know so this is a very subtle distinction, and of course, there's no way of resolving this. Short of having a conversation with the Buddha, they ask okay what what really is going on in your mind?" Of well, course, we could ask you. <laughs> you know that that might illuminate this topic. I don't think so. <laughs>
0: my, my desire is fully charged. The battery is charged. Yes, my so. desire. But for you, it's so interesting for me to hear. I mean, I guess I kind of knew this, but for you, so the desire comes up, and there are you take oh, the bait a, occasionally. Oh yes. And what What are the? Again, I think I know some of this, but what gets you
1: going? It could be anything, and uh, but
0: – You once told me you can't resist a shoe salesman.
1: <laughs> I can resist the salesman. I can resist the shoes.
0: Oh, it's really like a guilt thing.
1: <laughs> completely. It's it's completely codependent. If, <laughs> if the salesman actually bring uh, – maybe because my shoes, my size is so big, you know, it's heavy to carry size 14 shoes out. <laughs> I feel you know they did all this work I feel compelled so that's why like online but it it could be anything it could be for example you know even on retreat or, or off retreat just something smaller The thought will come up you know oh a cup of tea would be nice so it's just it's not a it's not a significant desire but the force of desire is there and i can watch my mind just be aware of it, let it come and go, let it come and go. But it's almost like a blade of grass, you know, growing up through concrete. The for, Even with a small desire, the force of it can be very persistent. And so I've noticed so many times, you know, watching the desire come and go many times, and then it comes once more, and I act on it. <laughs> so it could be something, as, you know, as small as that, or... It uh, could be anything, you know, walking down here. I don't get to New York that often. Uh, so walking down, you know, just window shopping, seeing either gadgets or some piece of clothing, or, oh, that would be nice. <laughs> you know, and mostly they just come and go. But occasionally, you know, they, they hook the mind. And it's interesting just to watch, you know, what's what's lacking and... One of the interesting things I've learned in watching my mind in relationship to desire is the one piece that seems to be uh, lacking a bit at those times when I just go for it uh, is the quality of energy. And this is a recent kind of understanding that that I'm actually feeling a low energy, and so the mind is more susceptible, at least in, in my experience. It's more susceptible to the allure of the desire when the energy is low. Uh, so that's been interesting.
0: You know, it, that jives with what I've sometimes heard from folks in who study human behavior, uh, especially around willpower. So willpower is yeah, an yeah. extremely ephemeral quality, vulnerable in the face of, there's an acronym, H-A-L-T, HALT. Hunger, hmm. anger, loneliness, or tired, or being tired. So that the tea there seems to yeah. jibe
1: with yeah, what you're exactly. describing. Yeah,
0: yeah. When you, you talked about this ability, this re- a skill that you've developed over time for for the most part to be able to see a lot of these desires come without biting the hook. Mm-hmm. I love you've talked again. This is another. I'm quoting you back to you about uh, the Buddha talking about the terrible bait of the world, yes, that we're all yeah, like I love that. fish yeah, yeah. <laughs> biting the bait all the time. So you've gotten – you're a smarter fish at this point or a wiser fish now. Would that have – even though you've been meditating since, you know, 1862 or whatever, <laughs> but would that have been true, you know, in your 30s, even though you've been meditating for a while then? Or is there, or have you seen – are you getting better at this over time, even now?
1: Yes. I think I'm getting marginally better <laughs> No, I yeah, I think I am getting better. I'm um, I'm seeing it more clearly, you know. And even what I just mentioned about recognizing, oh yeah, the mind goes for that more frequently when I'm tired. So just really noticing that, and so then when I'm tired, when I remember, you know, I keep something of an eye out <laughs> for the desires, knowing that oh, this is this is where I can really get caught, and. Sometimes it's successful, sometimes not. Sometimes I still go for it. Uh, so there's been a learning. Uh, and also one of the things, whether it comes from just all these years of meditation or just, you know, the aging process, um, I think I'm less seduced by the belief that whatever it is, will really make me happy. <laughs> so I can still go for it, but I'm not very often deluding myself into thinking this is going to be the answer to everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more the playing out of just this very deeply conditioned habit of mind. So there's a deeper understanding of really the empty nature of desire that's not really going to fulfill, you know, one's one's aspirations for happiness.
0: Another Josephism. I mean, it's just this 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 idea that whatever it is we want, once we get it, we're going to be good forever. Is this or kind even of, five minutes? <laughs> where, where, but it's a subconscious, often subconscious, primordial lie that we re up all the time? That you know, as soon as I get this promotion, or uh, as soon as I am able to get married, or get that slice of cake in the other corner of the room, like then I'm really going to. You know, be happy. Um, you've talked of uh, this was the Joseph- Josephism. I was getting at before. You've talked about sort of giving a rehab to the word disenchantment, which I love. The positive that disenchantment right. can be exactly. very positive, exactly. As can another word that you used earlier, another word that can be seen in 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 the most positive light, but often isn't, is renunciation.
1: Exactly, and and the phrase that helps me with renunciation is reframing it in terms of non-addiction because when i think of renunciation uh especially earlier on although to some extent still now it does have that uh, almost a connotation of deprivation okay i'll renounce this and it'll be good for me <laughs> but it kind of contains within it the the affect of oh, I'm depriving myself of something. Whereas when I frame renunciation as non-addiction, so then the connotation is really a freedom. Mm-hmm. It's not deprivation. And so that that often can be an inspiration uh, to actually practice a little non-addiction. There's, there's another subtle point, which I have just been exploring very recently. So this is kind of... The latest in the latest in Joseph's uh, <laughs> breaking news. Breaking exactly, mind. exactly. So I was watching desire in my mind and seeing myself, you know, act on act on it. And very classically, you know, the Buddha taught that this was in meditation. This, yeah, yeah. Uh, very classically, the Buddha taught that what conditions our desire are pleasant feelings. You know, we, we want something. Because of the pleasantness that uh, we think will come from it, so a big part of the teaching is just realizing the impermanence of pleasant feeling, so even if you know what we want does bring some pleasure, it's pretty fleeting, and the more we understand that, so the less addicted we become so that that was the the ongoing understanding that I was operating under. But just recently, as I've been watching my mind before the fulfillment of the desire, but while I was still having the desire in my mind, I noticed that the anticipation of getting what I want had a certain kind of pleasure embedded in it. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what was more seductive to me than the thing itself. I was it was almost like I don't know if I'm using the right word here, but maybe it's something analogous. It's almost like the the thought of what I want the very thought gives a little endorphin hit mm-hmm. or whatever whatever the chemical is in the brain, a pleasure hit. Maybe
0: dopamine.
1: Yeah. And so then I realized yeah, so I am I keep thinking about it and wanting and even acting to keep the current pleasant feeling going. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even so much, I'll get this thing and then I'll feel happy or good. It was right in the very process of desiring that it was triggering that response. Uh, is that clear? Yes, yeah. to and, me yeah. at least. So that was really interesting for me and it, it helped – bring my awareness closer to the arising. It was focused more on actually the hook of the desire itself in the moment even before the acting on it. You know, what, what is it that keeps feeding it? Why do I keep being seduced by it? And I said, oh, yeah, there's, there's a pleasant feeling associated with this. As a thought, I want more. I want it to continue that that was really interesting to me yeah
0: the hook isn't just the consummation of the no, desire no. the hook is the anticipation yeah, of yeah. the consummation
1: yeah yeah and the, the and the the pleasant feeling in the anticipation that's right yeah. yes
0: yes but so, but that goes i think back oh. to what i was saying I, I about the the upside of disenchantment which is yeah. the this spell Again, I'm, exactly. I'm I'm quoting yes. back to you yes. you. Uh the <laughs> I'm going to do it's not going to yeah. yeah. this is not going to stop. Um the, 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 we're operating under this spell that all these things we yes. want are yes. going to this is this is happiness. Yes. And uh, and and the breaking of that spell, the disenchantment is quite liberating.
1: Exactly. Well, actually yeah. liberating is the word, the yeah. very word you would use. <laughs> the very word. And I mean the Buddha he he there's a little phrase he uses, which to me encapsulates this whole discussion, uh, when he said that the highest happiness is peace. You know, and so there are, you know, there are different levels of happiness, and one kind is the happiness we get from sense pleasures. So the Buddha's not denying that they bring a certain gratification. They do, which is why we're enamored of them. But there's a downside to them as well. And that is they don't last, <laughs> you know. And so if we keep thinking that that's going to be the source of our happiness, then we're on this endless treadmill because it's never, fulf- it's never completely fulfilling, you know, or satisfying. Uh, but it's not to deny that it has its own level of happiness associated with it. It's just there's much greater happiness. And in meditation, even if, we, even if it's just for a few moments at a time, when we actually can experience the peace, the peace of not wanting. You know, and we, we we taste that for ourselves even for a few moments. That opens up a whole new possibility for us in our lives. You know, that can if we really see that clearly even as we continue with the habit of wanting and fulfilling the wants. That habit goes deep, it's not going to it's not going to end just from some understanding that it's impermanent. Uh, but even if that habit is continuing, still the insight or the experience that there's a greater happiness, that really can reset can reset the direction of our lives, mm-hmm. which is why meditation practice all along the way is good. You know, e- Even at the beginning when people are having a lot of struggles or difficulties with it, uh, you know, and seeing a lot of desires arise in the mind—that's uh, all part of the process. But we get glimpses; we get glimpses of a possibility, uh, and that they can be really transforming. I have three
0: things to say. I've written them down because yes. both of us have terrible yes. memories, and so we'll get lost. But I want to say all three of them, and then we'll, I'll make sure I'll make sure we get right. to all of yeah. them. First <coughs> is just a clarification, and I think you said this. We are not in this discussion of renunciation and disenchantment saying don't ever have a piece of cake. We're not saying Correct. don't – you you should be right. abstemious now and forever. Neither of us. Correct. Is. OK. So that's the first thing. Box checked. <laughs> Second thing uh, and third thing is that you have two really interesting practices that I think – can be have been very helpful for me and might be helpful for people listening so i want to get you to talk about both of them i'll i'll, I'll name mm-hmm. them both and then you can uh-huh. do them both or do one at a time whatever you want one is and i think we talk about this on the app letting a desire pass so and the other is this little phrase that you invoked a moment ago of not wanting can be that phrase not wanting can be dropped into the practice in a way that is very interesting. So can we talk about both of those?
1: Right. Well, what was the first one again? <laughs> 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 you know, the second one pushed
0: out the first. <laughs> um, the first one was uh, this this thing oh, the that, you, that you're directing ending. our mind right, to the right. moment after yeah, a yeah, desire yeah. passes.
1: Yeah. Okay, so this is interesting to watch because desires come up All the time. They're coming up all day long, big ones, little ones. Uh, But in meditation, you know, we're sitting and we're having this time when we're consciously not acting on them. You know, it's giving us the framework for just sitting and observing the mind rather than being totally caught up in the mind's activity. So it gives us a chance to really experience what it's like when the desire is in the mind. And if we're just Meditating, being mindful, being aware. At a certain point, the desire is going to go away. It always does because everything is changing and impermanent. So it gives us a chance to experience directly what it's like to be ensnared by the desire and then what it's like when the mind is free of desire. So going back to what I was just saying earlier, in watching the quality of the mind when the desire is there, There is, at least in my experience, there is some pleasantness involved, that anticipatory pleasure. But especially when we look at that experience in contrast to the mind that has let go of the desire or the desire has simply passed and we experience the ease of no desire the ease of the mind you know and not wanting so then from that perspective even though there's a pleasure involved in the desire we can all also experience its contracted nature there's a certain feeling of contraction or tightness or something we're we're imprisoned yeah. we're, we've created mm-hmm. perhaps a comfortable prison you know in the pleasant the pleasantness of or anticipation, but it's still an imprisonment, which we can really see clearly in that moment if we're just sitting and watching the desire. It's there, it's there, it's there, and then it goes away right in that moment. It's very interesting to pay attention to that feeling of relief. You know, I I often describe it as it feels like we've been let out of the grip of something, that the desire was gripping us, and then we're released from the grip. So that's very interesting to watch those two mind states, uh, which happen in that, which we can see clearly in that moment, when we're going from being in the grip of desire to that moment when it just changes and disappears. And,
0: and special circumstances are not required to, to practice. Not this. at
1: all. Not, a, and, and can, not even not even sitting meditation. Right. Right. That's what I'm saying. All day, all day long.
0: Right. Just you know, you're walking down the hallway. You notice the urge to whatever. Put a pencil in the eye of your uh, coworker, or whatever, and you can maybe <laughs> that's anger. The yes. real is
1: coming out. <laughs> uh, I never hide
0: this. It's all right here. Uh, you uh, whatever desire, uh, cake, would anything. Uh, anything. And if you're just, you know, like a modicum of self-awareness, I catch, okay, here I am. Here's another one. Yep. If you miss this one, there will be another one 30 <laughs> seconds later. And then just pay attention. Yes. Don't You're not feeding or fighting it. You're just watching. Yes. It will go away. And yes. I found in my own experience that that is enormously satisfying. Yes.
1: Yes. That That's that victory over Mara. Yes. You know, aha. <laughs> Mara, I see you. <laughs> yeah. And it is it is satisfying. And it is strengthening, you know that that those moments throughout the day really are strengthening our meditative practice. You know, so they're not. They, this is not insignificant. I think this this is a really powerful practice to incorporate, just in in our ordinary everyday lives.
0: And I just want to make a linguistic <clears throat> point. <Is> it, <clears throat> I, I suspect the language of Mara, I see you was chosen. <clears throat> I suspect deliberately. Vipassana, the kind of meditation you teach, translates roughly into insight meditation. This is all about the clear seeing exactly. of our own inner processes so that we're not so yanked around. Yes, by it. exactly. Just do that a lot. Yes, exactly.
1: You you can teach the next retreat, Dan. You're doing a great job.
0: If you say yes exactly to all of my utterances, you can come back as much as you want. Although you didn't want to come, so I don't know if that's much of an enticement. Um, So not wanting as a phrase to be dropped into our meditation. You've been suggesting this to me in our uh, uh, teacher-student relationship for a long time. Can you talk, talk about how that might work?
1: So it's the same principle, as we've just been talking about, seeing the peace of not wanting. Recently, in my practice, I've been seeing more and more clearly, both in myself and in working with lots lots of meditators, even when we're just in the simplicity of the mindfulness practice. We're just sitting, feeling the breath, feeling different sensations, thoughts coming and going. This very ordinary, straightforward sitting practice. Still, very often there's a tendency to be leaning into the next moment. So it's watching the in-breath with a slight leaning into the out-breath. Or we're with some sensation, maybe a painful sensation in the body, and we're with it in order for it to diminish or... There's very often a subtle in-order-to-mind, so I call that leaning into the process. It's a kind of wanting, even for the next moment's experience, not necessarily a big wanting of something outside. It's the wanting that is often right there in our meditation, which often goes unnoticed, because it can be really subtle. So I found that, dropping in that phrase as I'm sitting. Again, this can be a very ordinary sitting. We don't have to be in any kind of deep concentration. We just drop in the phrase occasionally, oh, not wanting. And for myself anyway, maybe you had the same experience, in that moment of reminding ourselves not wanting, can often feel the mind drop back from that leaning into the next moment. And we get a taste; we get a real taste on a subtle, on quite a subtle level, in the meditative process of what the experience of not wanting is—you know, not wanting even the next moment something to happen—and that really is a a very vivid experience of what. meditation practice is really all about. And this is often misunderstood, you know, because, and especially as people are beginning and, you know, they come to meditation from a whole variety of motivations, uh, which are all fine, you know, whatever brings people to the practice, but it's often framed in terms of some kind of wanting, which can be a useful motivation, maybe wanting more calm or wanting to be less stressed or wanting... Peace or wanting something, as I say. So I'm not saying that that's that's bad, you know. And it actually brings us to the practice. But then, as we settle into the meditation itself, and we have these experiences of oh, not wanting, not wanting anything, you know, that dropping back from leaning into the next moment. That really illuminates. This is what the practice is about, because we we get a taste of that peace, you know, and it's quite profound, even if it's just momentary, you know. We, we get a real glimpse of it. Um, so this is a kind of meditative application of watching desire come and go. You know, so that's on the more what we we're talking about earlier is more on kind of the everyday level of our lives. What we're talking about now is really the meditative moment-to-moment experience. So I've tried this, and
0: sometimes it's. this may just be more evidence as <laughs> if it was needed, what a terrible meditator I am, but um, there are times when <clears throat> I try dropping, I'm, I'm meditating, here, here I am, whatever's happening in my meditation, I'll say, oh, yeah, remember that Joseph told me to do that thing, <laughs> try saying the phrase not wanting. And I've found on occasion, when I can remember to do this, that – uh, I don't know if you've ever – you probably haven't, but the, there were these famous primetime uh, pieces, uh, news pieces that my colleague, my then colleague Chris Cuomo did where he would go into hotel rooms with a black light and shine it on on the bed or all over the place and all sorts of disgusting things were on there, right? And um, I find that when I point and I drop not wanting in, just like Chris and his black light, I – all of the wanting that was there is all of a sudden illuminated. I'm realizing, oh, wow, I thought I was like meditating yes, nicely here, yes. but there's just a ton of wanting that's happening here instead of perhaps – instead of, in my case, often f- getting a momentary glimpse right. of the okay. not
1: wanting. Okay. So this points to an instruction that I give a lot on meditation retreats. So there's uh, a – a less subtle analogy, you know, to to what we've been talking about. And that is it's very common when people are sitting, of course a lot of thoughts come, and very often we're carried away by thoughts, you know, until we wake up and we realize we're thinking and then we're back to awareness of the body or the breath, or even aware of awareness itself. The tendency that many people have uh, is once they wake up from being lost in thought. They judge themselves for having been lost. That's the first trick, reac- the first reaction. You know, lost, 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 and then oh, I've been thinking. Oh, there I go again. I'm thinking again. There are so many thoughts, and so then the mind just is getting caught up and being lost again. <laughs> so what I, I that's you know.
0: happened to me <laughs> seventy five million. times. Yeah,
1: exactly. Dollars. It's common. It's, so my suggestion for people in that moment of waking up from being lost in the thought, and again, it's practicing it so we remember to do it. It's not hard to do. It's just hard to remember. In that moment of waking up from being lost, to actually focus the attention on the experience of the wakefulness rather than the reflection back on having been lost. Because as many times as we get lost in thought, Exactly that many times do we wake up from yeah, being right, lost. Right, right, right. So why not focus on the awakening aspect?
0: Because actually, the waking up is a victory. Uh,
1: uh, yes. Y-
0: you once advised mm. me, and I, I may be is misremembering a <laughs> word. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I might yeah. be remembering it incorrectly. That there's a Tibetan phrase, a maho. A maho. which means how amazing. Right. And that you could, if I'm remembering this correctly, that you could invoke that phrase upon waking up, like, "Oh, wow! Actually, look
1: at the, yes. how amazing it is. Yes. I,
0: I, I can actually be awake. Yes. I can, I can stop sleepwalking."
1: There's that. But even more to the point, or maybe using those thoughts as a as an impetus to to actually. Become mindful of the experience of the wakefulness, not just the comment, Mm -hmm. oh, good, I'm awake again, which is good. I mean, that's a good support, but you don't want to stay in the thought level about the wakefulness. You really want to take that opportunity, and it could be just a few moments, but we take the opportunity of having awoken from being lost to taste to taste that moment of freedom, you know, so that we, we have a clear an increasing clarity of oh, this is what awareness is like. You know, and it's very real for us because it's our experience. It's not theoretical. It's not what somebody taught us. Oh, this is what wakefulness is. And it's very vivid in that moment because we've just come out of being, of having been asleep.
0: Uh, for, for people who are sort of still getting into meditation, there are a lot of words <laughs> you, you just use that might benefit from explication, words like wakefulness and its connection to freedom or awareness. Can you say more about all of those?
1: Well, I think, I think one of the easiest ways to really understand the meaning of those words is being mindful of precisely precisely what we've been talking about in that move from being lost in a thought to becoming aware that we're thinking right there. The difference between being lost and being aware is very vivid because we've just gone from one to the other. And so that's a very easy way to get a feel for or taste of the nature of awareness because we're experiencing it in that moment. And this happens many times. It, it happens as many times as we're lost in thought. Because as I said, <laughs> for as many times as we're lost, that many times do we eventually come out from being lost. But mostly people just overlook that moment. They're, they're not, they're not uh, reaping the benefit that they could if they would pay attention to what that feeling of wakefulness is like in that very moment.
0: Let me say a bunch of words and you can (laughs) fact check them. So awareness uh, in this context is... Mindfulness. Yes. A non-commenting, non-judgmental, not adding or subtracting, wanting or rejecting awareness of whatever is happening right now, yes. which may sound super theoretical and it is tough to describe because it is a little bit, to use a cliche here, like dancing about architecture. It is better to experience than to describe. But if you meditate enough, it's not a, again, it's a it's very down to earth. It's yes, not a yes. special state we're trying to achieve. And it is not something you can be in, at least for beginner, non-extraordinary beginners, and I put myself in that crew, not something you're going to be in permanently. Meditation is about this ongoing process of noticing, usually we anchor on our breath, the feeling, the raw data of those physical sensations of the arising and uh, and falling of the breath, and then you get lost in a million thoughts, and then you wake up, you're back with the breath, and over and over and over again. And in that way, we get these little tastes of what lies beneath our thoughts.
1: Yes. And especially if we're paying attention in that moment of coming out from being lost. Mm -hmm. Because as I say, people very often just skip over that and either go into some judgment about having been thinking or rush back to whatever their object of meditation is. It's like, okay, I've been lost back to the breath. Yes. Without actually taking that moment to experience the mind right of wakefulness,
0: and with your tail between your legs a little bit, whether you notice it or not. <laughs> yes. So, so, hence the power of a phrase like "amaho," 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 or "welcome back," right. or some little phrase to mark the occasion.
1: Right. And so then the tail starts wagging in delight. <laughs> yes, yes. Instead of between one's legs. Yes. Yes. Uh, I like that image of you. <laughs> there's, there's going to be this image of Dan wagging his tail every time he wakes up from being lost in the thought. Well, and, and I should be careful because who knows where this is going to go. We could also
0: have the image of you rolling up a newspaper and smacking out the snout. So, you, you many possibilities here. Um, so, w- one of the hallmarks of your teaching, and we've uh, people may have noticed this by now, is the use of these illustrative. Illuminating Mm. phrases. Mm. There's little catch, little phrases that we use in our practice and in our life. Um, We have built entire courses around this on the app, um, and these (laughs) phrases come to me all the time. But there were two. There was one you used earlier, and another that I was reminded of that I think are worth looking at. You used this earlier, but you kind of skipped over it, which is the a mind state that you refer to as in order to mind which is we are mindful with gritted teeth of a pain in our knee while meditating, but it is not really mindfulness because it's suffused with aversion in the form of I will be mindful of this in order to make it go away.
1: Yes, but just a, a comment on that. Sometimes it is we are with something with gritted teeth. Sometimes it's without gritted teeth. Sometimes that in order to is very subtle. So it's there's not going to be necessarily the big signal of, okay, I'm enduring this, you know, so it'll go away, which happens often enough. But at a certain point, we get over that more obvious kind of resistance and wanting to just very subtle levels. And so it's just helpful to be aware of that. Uh, I'll just give you an example. Um, so there's one teacher, his name is Utejaniya, a Burmese meditation master, he uses the phrase a lot in his instruction to check the attitude of the mind. Oh,
0: it, that was the other thing I was going to say. Okay. Yeah,
1: so, I've been spending
0: way too much time with you. So, <laughs>
1: and by attitude, he just means to check how we're relating to what's right. happening. Right.
0: This is another black light effect.
1: In other words, if you yes. drop this
0: phrase yes. into your practice... Just hearing out of curiosity. What's the attitude in my mind right now? All of a sudden, all, Chris Cuomo's there there like, yes, showing yes. how disgusting the bedsheets are. <laughs> or
1: or maybe, maybe it's not uh, horribly disgusting. <laughs> it, might, it might be something you really You're talking about somebody else's <laughs> mind because that doesn't weigh, that's not the way it works here. So, uh, just as an example of my experience of using that phrase— so one time I was just sitting and just feeling my breath it was very simple, common, ordinary sitting. Just feeling the breath come in and out. And then I remembered, you know, that question and said, Well, what's the attitude in the mind? And it's not even it's not even that we're asking the question for an answer. Very often it's the simple asking of the question which affects the change. And so this is what I noticed. It's, I'm just sitting there feeling my breath. Okay, what's the attitude in the mind? And in the moment of asking the question, I could feel my mind settle back from a wanting that I didn't even know was there. It was so subtle. Just as I say that slight leaning into the breath of maybe a subtle wanting for more concentration or I'm watching this in order for calm. But nothing nothing this wasn't in in big you know this wasn't a lit up marquee very subtle but still there and then often just in the asking of the question we can that itself is off, is all that's needed for the mind to drop back for those moments oh. you know feeling the breath without any wanting
0: so just to <laughs> clarify i this is going to sound <laughs> defensive because it is defensive um <laughs> Uh, I like to highlight the the you know phantasmagoric nature of the mind because I because it's funny and because I think it makes people feel better because realize uh-huh. to normalize this stuff. But actually, the 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 phrase, the attitude check that we're talking about now does do that for me. Like I yeah. I, I see the negativity, but I am almost immediately released from it yes. because. Wow, I didn't see that was there before. That's kind of interesting and poof.
1: Yes, exactly. You just got an A. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's all I really care about.
0: Um so so we've talked about many phrases as far so as Maho. in order to mind, you know, checking the attitude, uh not wanting, and we'll talk about more, but a question before we go further. By the way, I'm flying without any uh, I'm not, I don't have a plan for this interview, so I'm just making it up as I go. But, but I know we'll, we'll un, undoubtedly hit other phrases in the context of, in, as we continue this discussion. But I just want to make clear because I, I, I am intuiting potentially some nervousness on, or confusion on the part of listeners that, oh, my God, you've just thrown so many little tools at me. How do I know when to use them? Um, what would you say to that?
1: I think mostly I would say just become somewhat familiar with some of these phrases, the ones that resonate for whatever reason, you know, that when you hear the phrase, something clicks in the mind. And so just to review the phrases from time to time and then trust that the right phrase or that phrase will come up in the meditation at the right moment. So I wouldn't try to have some plan, oh, I'm going to you know, repeat this phrase five times in the sitting or I would, I would think it's much better just to, to become familiar. So it's in there, you know, it's in our minds. When you say become familiar, I mean, just like listening to the podcast is Yeah, listening to, to the company. podcast and maybe even reflecting a little bit on what the <laughs> phrases mean for each person, you know, and because different ones of us may resonate with one or another of these phrases, you know, the, just intuitively, they make sense to us. So, simply to go over, and, and we do go in, on the on the app. We do go through quite a lot of these phrases and what they mean. Uh, yeah. So just to familiarize oneself, and then, in a way, let them go. Trust the process, and I think, as reflected in your own experience, they do they do pop up in the mind, uh, and the more that happens. Uh, the more access we have, you know, to the possible liberating effect.
0: Yeah, so I'll, I'll just say a little bit about how this has worked for me with your phrases or any other, you know, I sit and talk to a lot of teachers, don't get offended. You
1: use other people's <laughs> phrases then? You didn't check that with well, me. Well, every other teacher in the world is willing to come on the podcast, so, you know, hey, sorry.
0: Um By the way, just in Joseph's defense, he's not been avoiding me. We just haven't been able to schedule it for four years. So whatever you you read into that whatever you want. Um, Anyway, my point is that I I have had times in my practice where you and I – so the way our teaching relationship works – I'm not explaining this to you. I'm explaining it to the listener is we get on the phone every month to whatever and talk about my practice. And sometimes I'll walk out of uh, an hour-long discussion with you like a plan for something I'm going to – explore in my mm. practice in the ensuing weeks. And so I will sometimes take a phrase and say, yeah, I'm really going to work on mm. this for mm. a period of time. So that's one way to approach it. The other is that I've just been kind of swimming in this material for long enough mm. that it is absolutely true in my experience that what you're describing of the phrases just popping into your head at, a, at an interesting moment. It just seems to happen, and mm. I don't have an explanation for why right. it is.
1: Okay, you get another A because your first comment, I think, is very helpful. So if there's a phrase that that we do want to explore for whatever reason, you know, because we just intuitively relate to it or it seems puzzling to us and we don't quite understand it for whatever reason, I think it can be valuable, as you just suggested, to make a decision. Okay, for this sitting or for this week, however long, I'm going to drop this in and explore it. But I think both both of those approaches really are helpful. So thank you for clarifying that. My pleasure. Stay tuned. More of our conversation
0: is on the way after this. whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. One of the questions that came in from one of our teachers, Devin Haze, uh, who you know... And who is a a really special person and she asked a question that I think is relevant to the discussion we've been having, which is kind of your thoughts about the – I guess it's an ethical question about the business you and I are are involved in as through 10% Happier, through this podcast, through the app or whatever – through books that you unwillingly, uh, you know, I steal all of your wisdom for, um, of kind of, um, for lack of a better term, a kind of a secular dharma, you know, uh, where are are we? You're a Buddhist teacher, and yet we don't emphasize the metaphysical claims of the Buddha. We don't use a lot of, at least on the app, a lot of the lingo. We use some of it, but not a lot of it. We don't. We're not. Putting, we're not hiding Buddhism, right. I don't think, but we're also not. There's no Buddha, Buddhist iconography right. all over the app or anything like that. And is that a, is that a watering down or in any way a disservice to the Buddha's message? Because, you know, I I I call oh, quite openly call myself a Buddhist, and yet I don't. I do have some worry about mm-hmm. presenting the app as a Buddhist yes. app because. I think it people it might scare people off. No. That's a lot to throw at you, but I'm yeah. just curious what your thoughts.
1: So I make a bit of a distinction, and this is, this is totally subjective and idiosyncratic to me, so I'm not suggesting that other people would even think in the same way. But in my own mind, I make a distinction between being a Buddhist and following or exploring the depth of the Buddha's teachings. Because becoming a Buddhist in one way is just another identity. (laughs) And the Buddha's talking about letting go of (laughs) all these identities which we create. So even for myself, who's dedicated his whole life to these teachings, you know, I... I might say and have said from time to time, yeah, I'm Buddhist, but I don't really feel that terminology to represent really how I feel, but I do feel completely committed to the fullness of the Buddhist teachings. So in the question you asked, yes, it is possible to present the teachings without any kind of requirement, you know, uh, that wouldn't become a Buddhist at all. But it's also helpful to kind of explore, okay, are we really exploring the full range of the teachings, or are we exploring some part of the range? Uh, So that's the piece that I would look at. And I've discussed, actually, with some people uh, from the app. uh, I was just floating an idea, and This may be something that neither you nor anybody else is interested in doing. But I was wondering whether on the app itself, there could be a Buddhist corner. You know, for people who may not be attracted in the beginning to that, you know, who really just want to learn the tools of mindfulness and the benefit it can bring and, and really getting benefit from it. But some percentage of people might then be inspired. Well, what else did the Buddha have to say? You know, what is the full range of the teachings? Because it's profound, you know, and there's, there's, there's so much. And so I was wondering, well, you know, what if there were a Buddhist corner where that was its explicit purpose? Yeah. Uh, and then people could choose to either go to that corner of the app or not.
0: You know, I'll give you my first impression, which is I'm very open to it because, I mean, I just think about my own progression. If you would – so I started getting interested in this stuff 2008, 2009. The idea of becoming a Buddhist was repulsive, right? I I didn't know anything about it, right? But I knew that it seemed like joining a religion, which I was not up for doing. And by the way, I'm still not up for doing. It was because I didn't really understand that – and this is a great quote. I think it's from Stephen Batchelor, but Buddhism isn't something to believe in. It's something to do. Yes. And this is a vast treasury yes. of deeply practical practices for the mi- – exercise for the mind, uh, exercises for the mind and philosophy as well and great stories and um, like savoring our idiosyncrasies like – the delicacies they are, and and also a community that of people who are interested in taking these practices seriously. There's just a ton of yes. stuff yes. there that I think, when positioned correctly, is can be very, very interesting to people who still consider themselves to be secular yes. or who consider themselves to be practicing Jews or Muslims or Christians, yes. whatever, because properly understood, this is just a set of tools to make you a happier, more compassionate, friendly person.
1: Yes, I I completely agree with that. I I think just to clarify or maybe even simplify kind of for me what would be the essence of this Buddhist corner, which again is uh, for myself also is not about becoming a Buddhist. It's about the exploration of the Buddha's teachings. Yes, yes, yes. yes. for me, the essence of that corner, you know, if, if we ever did anything like this, would be to really focus on the awakening aspect of the teachings or the liberative aspects of the teachings in the deepest way, not just the teachings which make us 10% happier or our life more easeful or you know, better, uh, more fulfilled engagement with the world, whatever our aspiration is. And they can be wholesome aspirations, but not necessarily considering, well, what does enlightenment really mean? You know, we hear that phrase often associated with the Buddhist teachings. You know, he got enlightened, and then many of his disciples became enlightened. Well, what's that about? You know, what's liberation about? So that's the level that I think we could explore in greater depth. And we do reference it, and you know, many of the teachers on the app I think do refer in one way or another to the freeing aspect, but not really, as far as I know, in its fullness of what, what awakening really is about. So that's, that's a profound aspect of the teachings, and that's, that's the piece that I think could be explored in greater depth. Let's
0: do a little bit of it now. For folks who are new to this idea of the, you know, they're 10 they're percent, they're, you know, beginning meditators interested in the idea of being 10 percent happier because that seems doable, the liberative aspect of the practice, what does that actually mean in the simplest possible terms?
1: Okay, so there are different ways of describing that uh, with varying levels of simplicity to it. So the the most pragmatic description of what we might call the awakened mind, would be the mind that has freed itself from the habits of greed and hatred and ignorance. So we're talking about the actual uprooting of those deeply conditioned tendencies in all of us, the potential of uprooting them from our mind streams. So that would be one meaning of liberation, of awakening. Uh, that purification of the mind to that extent. So that's one way of framing it: just freeing the mind from greed and hatred and ignorance. Even from the very beginning, we engaged in that process. So even people who are not concerned about final liberation, still in doing the practice, they are weakening those forces. So, and weakening those forces. By the way, that doesn't just
0: make sure you people aren't confused. This isn't some mystical, well, I guess it is mystical, but it's not some metaphysical like deep Dungeons and Dragons yeah. thing. You're weakening it just by seeing it and not acting on exactly. it over and over and exactly. over. Again. just
1: uh, as we were talking in the beginning, yes. not not buying into each desire. Yes.
0: This is very down to earth. Yes. So, when we talk about the deep end of the pool here, it's a straight path from the yes. shallow end. Yes. It's not yes. some it's not a different pool.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, But as we go deeper into the pool, we start to get more and more subtle understandings of what it is that has and continues to feed the habits of greed and hatred delusion. So one example of that, and this is getting more into some of the subtle aspects, is we're deeply habituated to the view of self, of I. So my thoughts, my body, my emotions, I'm this, I'm that. It's like all of our experiences, for the most part, you know, are self-referential. We've created a notion of self behind all of these experiences. These, these experiences are happening to me. You know? and so we've created this notion of self, of I, that's really at the center of our lives. Our our lives revolve around gratifying the self or defending it or aggrandizing it. We're in some relationship to this concept of self, of I. One of the very radical understandings that comes through the Buddhist teachings, not becoming a Buddhist, but just exploring the teachings, is to see that this very notion of self or I is a construct. It's a a concept which we've created and doesn't actually refer to anything in and of itself. And so the deeper end of the pool is beginning to explore, well, what does selflessness actually mean? And we, we all have a sense of its meaning on the shallow end of the pool. So we already have some taste. For example... I think if we said of someone or of ourselves, you know, oh, I'm or that person is very self-centered. So that's just on a psychological personality level, but we, we all know what that means. You know, and it's not, it's not a desirable quality, self-centered. So that's, that's kind of a common experience, which we all have. We can take that very experience and say, yeah, if when, when somebody is not so self-centered... They're happier. They make everyone around them happier. So we can follow that thread to the deep end of the pool to see that the very notion of self in the first place is a construct.
0: How is seeing or glimpsing the illusion of the self liberative?
1: It's pretty simple. Well, not easy. That was another phrase my first teacher Meningerji, used to use. It's simple but not easy. The practice is simple but not easy. So it's not complicated, but it's not easy because of the depth of our conditioning. So it's liberative. The idea of selflessness is liberative. I mean, one example is what we were talking about earlier, you know, in our conversation. When we can see a desire arise in the mind, there's a big difference between feeling it as, oh, I have this desire, this desire belongs to me, I need to act on it to be fulfilled. That's very different than seeing the desire itself as selfless. The desire itself is just another conditioned, habitual arising in the mind. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's just an arising. In seeing its selfless nature, it becomes much easier to not be hooked by it or not be ensnared by it because we're not taking it to be who we are. We're seeing it as just this is just a pattern in the mind. So the more we can see that selfless nature of whatever is arising, it's very liberating because we're no longer biting on the bait. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this is – I liked – I really – is another A, Dan. I, I like that, that idea of the Lord is a mixed metaphor of, of the thread from the shallow end to the deep end.
0: I was in a pool recently yeah. uh, because it's summertime and you dive into the – sometimes I like swimming along the bottom of the pool. It's just a gradual path yes, right down yes, to the deep yeah, end. Yeah. But again, you don't have to go into the neighbor's yes, pool exactly, to get into a deep end. Exactly. Um, yeah. and, and that is why I'm open to the idea yeah. of – a. Buddhist corner.
1: I maybe call it the deep end.
0: Maybe we call it the deep end. Yes, right. Yeah. Because it's it's not about minting new Buddhists. It's just about exploring what else is there, and exactly. there's a lot. Yes, and just a word on like I do refer to myself as a Buddhist mostly because I it's out of a desire not to hide yes. the ball. Yes, I have the same discomfort with it as you do, but I'm practicing Buddhist meditation yes. every day and yes. endeavoring to. Infuse it into everything I do, with you know, quite as best as possible levels of success here. And so, just saying I'm yes. a Buddhist seems like no, it's like, convenient. It's yes. a
1: convenient shorthand. Yes,
0: in some ways it's inconvenient because you have to explain it <laughs> yeah. to people. But I'd rather do that than yeah. have people suspect somehow yeah. that I'm pulling one over yeah. on them. Yeah. 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 That's why. But but in terms of the ethics of this, you know, there have been a lot of critics out there who've who criticized this idea of Mick mindfulness, this, I- this idea that something essential is lost when you dumb things down and make it simple and commodify it, or in our case, you know, having a profitable business built around it. Do, do you share those ethical concerns?
1: Uh, I think there's a potential for kind of a misuse of in all these endeavors not that they're intrinsic to what's happening and so it's just to be really watchful and there are a few different parameters that one could look at uh one is just well what's the motivation behind doing what we're doing and with motivation and this is a point that that i make a lot with with different students or other teachers or teacher trainees uh, It's not that the expectation should be that our motives are 100% pure because until we're fully awakened or some kind of saint, they're not going to be 100% pure. There's, There's going to be a mix. And so, for example, with something like the app or many other endeavors, there could be a whole range of motivations. You know, the motivation to really be of service, to share the teachings that have been valuable along with the motivation for the company to be profitable. Yeah. So those two don't. Which, by
0: the way, employs a bunch of people.
1: Yes, exactly. There are a lot of different aspects, and so just to look at one's own motivation and see which are the leading ones. Are we being led by greed for profit, or are we being led by a desire to offer employment or to help people understand the practice, even though the other motivation may be there but it's not the driving force. So I think looking at motivation is really important in terms of the ethics of it all. A second piece, uh, and I'm not sure whether this gets talked about a lot or not in a more secular mindfulness approach, the the mindfulness, uh, is whether or not the ethical framework of the teachings is woven into what's being presented. So I think if the ethical framework is not being woven into, I see the potential there for uh, a misuse. You know, And so... Here, uh, I'm, I'm pausing a moment because this is leading into some... Subtle distinctions uh, that people could confuse attention with mindfulness, you know and so within the Buddhist psychology, attention is ethically neutral, and so we can be applying our attention to wholesome things to unwholesome things, you know, and so if what's being taught is attention training without any ethical framework? So then, there's the potential for just you know using it in the service of things that are not that helpful, you know, or, or actually harmful. Mindfulness is a certain qu- a certain kind of attention, and at least within our particular tradition, different traditions kind of frame this a little differently. But mindfulness is always wholesome, which means it's a kind of attention that is not uh, suffused with greed or aversion. And so when it's really mindfulness that's being taught rather than attention, the ethics is is already built in. But I'm not sure that this distinction, which is quite subtle, I, I don't know to what extent that is really explained. I, th- I think it's worth
0: diving in on ethics because it's another word like renunciation or disenchantment that can come off as not super attractive or fun, right? Yeah. But but ethics as I understand it, which is somewhat argue quite limited, uh, my understanding, in the Buddhist context really is actually attached or a. Approached through the pleasure centers of the brain because doing good feels good and harming other people or yourself feels bad if you're paying attention and so the ethical guardrails i've always found to be I, I can i feel comfortable sometimes this is going to sound paradoxical viewing them through a sort of selfish lens
1: Yes, I, th- I think that generally is true, although for me, the, 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 the basic definition of ethics, and I don't know if this is, uh, would stand up, you know, in some college philosophy course or not, <laughs> but in, in my use of the term, kind of the essence of ethics is non-harming. Non-harming of ourselves, non-harming of others, and so it's just to see what what actions of our body, speech, mind, cause harm, either to others or to ourselves. And ethics is refraining from those kind of activities. I would tweak a, what you said a little bit, so this gets to be like a B plus. Fine, <laughs> better than I did in college. So. Um. There could be some situations of doing harm, but that brings us a certain kind of pleasure in the moment. So just as one example, which can be all too common, uh, so among the basic ethical precepts you know, within the Buddhist teachings, this is just one example of there are, there's, you know, certain precepts of refraining from sexual misconduct or refraining from wrong speech. So sometimes, you know, lust is a powerful force, a very powerful, as as one teacher (laughs) described it. I love this. He said, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) 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 Because it does. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, we we can go crazy. Yeah. Uh, So that there could be some real enjoyment in that, on a certain level, even as we're doing harm, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yes, but that's.
0: But, but there's an, uh, to quote the Buddha back at you like, anger. Right. He said has a honey tip but right. a poison source. Yeah. So yes, I get it that gossip. Uh, exactly. sexual indiscretion can feel good in the moment. Yes, yes, But if you're paying attention, there's a vast reservoir of pain accessible yes. to you on the back end. No,
1: that's... Uh, that's. So that's,
0: I stand by myself. No. I'm upgrading myself back to an A. I still think that was the right way.
1: Well, point. so the question is, so we'll, let's negotiate this grade. <laughs> <laughs> you can bribe the teacher. <laughs> um. It's quite true, and I love that phrase of the Buddha, anger with its poison source and honeyed tip, but it's really the the honeyed tip can be much more apparent yeah. than the poison source. Yes, yes. So, yes, if we're really paying attention to the whole experience, <clears throat> we will discover that, but often the honeyed tip camouflages the poison source, and so that's why having explicit... Ethical framework is a protection. It is true that, you know, with enough practice, we will see it for ourselves. But to have it explicitly stated, it would be wise to refrain from sexual misconduct or, or you know, useless talk, things like that. That's a real support because we often are missing the harm that it might cause. Yes, yes, and and? <laughs>
0: and I think that the the true enlightened self-interest, so yes, I'm just no, going no, back absolutely. to self-interest, yes, yes. is you can live a whole lifetime bathing in the honey tip of, you know, just doing yes. all this stuff that feels good momentarily, day trading <laughs> through your whole life, right? And feel, I, I guess, happy on some level, but there's – Something operating in the mind, nonetheless, that is creating pain, whether you see it or not. Yes. And enlightened self-interest is to widen the lens so that you're capturing it all and realizing, no, 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 there's been a pain here all along that I haven't noticed. Like a teenager wearing braces who is acting like a jerk because she or he doesn't know that actually they're in pain from the braces. One of the things I love about the Buddha is you can often trace everything back to the pleasure centers of the brain. It feels good to do this stuff no matter how counterintuitive it may seem at first. I'll go with that. No, I <laughs> want you to argue with me. I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to be – I'm no, hoping to learn. I, no, I, th-
1: th- what you said is absolutely true. I might just – now I'm, I'm playing with you. <laughs> I might just tweak the phrase instead of enlightened self-interest. How about enlightened interest? Because just in the words we use and the terminology, on some very subtle level, and I wouldn't obsess about this, but just in using that language, it can reinforce the sense of a self, whereas it could be helpful to see that both the pleasure and the suffering are impersonal so neither one belongs to a self it's just you do this and there's good feeling that comes from it Mm -hmm. you do this and there's suffering that comes from it and none of it belongs to a self
0: right we i i i agree with you it's just that as you know i'm an inveterate salesman and performer and so Mm. i'm coming from a yes public positioning, yes, yes. marketing, yes. WC Fields <laughs> yes. type of situation where we have to ride this flawed yes. horse yeah, yeah. all the way to – we need to ride the hu- flawed horse in the door. In other words, i got to yeah. frame yeah. it as self-interest in right. order to get you in right. and make you realize that there's right. no horse and no self and no Santa <laughs> <Right>. Claus <laughs> right. anyway.
1: Right, right. No, that's fine. That's why to have the deep end. You yes. Know, in the, so, okay, riding the self-interest horse into the field – and then you start exploring the field in a deeper way. Yes. Oh, there's no yeah. horse. Yeah. There's no self-riding the horse. <laughs> so that gets interesting. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let me just go back to something you said
0: uh, a while ago about motivation. This is actually something you and I have discussed in the past because I'm <laughs> uh, when I get visibility on my own motivation, it's often very humbling. And it is
1: for all of us. Just to know that. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Because sometimes I feel like uniquely horrible. Um, ever, one time I called you after, after my 360 review. Uh, uh, listeners may remember I had a 360 review. A lot of people in my life gave anonymous feedback on how I'm doing on various levels. And it was, this came back about 13, 14 months ago. And I was devastated by the results. And – I called you and I said it kind of exacerbates this fear I've had that I'm just irrevocably rotten. And I wasn't really like opening up to you and you laughed in my (laughs) face, (laughs) which was actually the wisest move. It was like, took all of this, because I was really selfing there. You know, I was like in this story of myself and who's 100% anything. (laughs) Um, So, yes, uh, having said that, motivation. I think it's such a rich area to play with. And so I, I try to be mindful of my own motivations about the app company, the whole 10% yes, yes. enterprise, you know, is, was this just some ego trip I'm on tomorrow? Am I you am trying to make a bunch of money? Well, what's going on here? What am I really yes, trying yes. to do? Uh, and there's a lot, when I look, there's a lot of stuff in there I don't like to see. Um, but there's stuff in there that makes me really like, uh, <laughs> as, as emotional as I'm capable of getting, uh, <laughs> So how do we work with this? How do we look at it? How do we, I haven't really figured out exactly how to clearly see truly what's going on here with my motivations and how to feed the better angels in these situations. So do you have any advice there? Well,
1: I, I'll just give you a few examples when I notice the range of motivations in my own mind. This goes back you know, 50 years or so to my, to my India days when I was just getting into the practice. But I've been doing it for – you know, a few years, and then in the hot months in India, uh, those of us who were practicing uh, would go up to the, in, on the plains in India, would go up to the mountains because the hot season is really hot, you know, on, on the plains. So we would rent these, you know, very simple cottages up in what they call the hill stations, about 7,000 feet or so in this beautiful uh, view of the Himalayas. so beautiful surroundings. And because I had been practicing for some years then, uh, and there were a lot of people new to the practice, so just for this small community you know of Westerners who were living up in this little hill station, uh, I would give a talk every week, and this be- before I had become an official teacher. <laughs> you know I was just trying to share or wanting to share you know my understanding as far as I went. So every week, people would gather at my little cottage and, you know, sit on the lawn and I'd give a talk. And then I'd notice that every week before the talk, I would start counting how many people came. (laughs) Oh, this week, five people came. The next week, 10 people came. (laughs) Oh, but then only seven came. What? You know, maybe they didn't like. (laughs) And so my mind would just be doing that. So at a certain point, it became obvious to me that that's what my mind was doing And it still kept doing it. It's like every week I'd count how many people were there. But once I saw it clearly, it didn't bother me that it was there because I was not feeding it. I wasn't acting on it. I wasn't condemning it. I wasn't judging it, which is simply another way of feeding it. This is what people often don't realize. Uh, So then just seeing that— People in that
0: mind state might, for example, wonder whether they're irredeemably rotten.
1: Exactly. You know, instead of just saying, yeah, this is just a habitual thought pattern, it comes and goes really no different than a sound. You know, And, and so when we can relate to the unwholesome motivations that we're seeing in that way, you know, where we're not identifying, we're not buying in, and we're not condemning ourselves and not judging. We're just seeing clearly and letting them come and go. So then they don't have much these, – these less than wholesome motivations don't have that much of an impact. Uh, and I'm not saying that we're totally freed from them. You know, it still may be part of what is actually motivating us, but it's much diminished because we're seeing it clearly. We're not deluding ourselves into thinking, oh, I'm, I'm doing this totally from pure motivation – I think that's much more problematic than, than actually having a very clear, honest view of what's going on, because then we actually have the ability to see it and let it go. If we're not seeing it, it's like an underground stream that keeps influencing us in ways that we're not even aware of. Hence all these teachers abusing their students. Yeah, and there's so many examples of that. So I'll give you one other one other example of mixed motivation, which was very illuminating to me. Uh, and again, this goes back to my early days in India. Uh, and for people who have been there, they know this, there are a lot of beggars, you know, just on the street. Uh, so I was I was in Bodh Gaya, which is that small town but where the Buddha was enlightened. So it was, you know, an important place. And I was just in the bazaar buying some food. And this little beggar boy came up, you know, and his hand was out. And so without, without much thought at all, I just took an orange that I just bought and gave it to him. And it, was not, it, it wasn't that I had the thought, oh, I'm being so generous or nothing like that. It was very ordinary and, you know, I just took the orange and gave it to him. But then something really interesting happened. He just walked away without any acknowledgment whatsoever, not a smile, not a nod N- nothing. And that registers. <laughs> it's like... And I certainly was not expecting effusive thanks for the orange. But in the absence of it, I realized that there was some little hidden motivation or wanting something. I mean, it was even something really small, like a nod of the head. And it's in absence. I said, oh, yeah, that motivation was that. I didn't even... I would never have even realized it was there if there hadn't been the absence of it. So that was just really interesting to me, but I didn't it wasn't I got down on myself for it. It was it was interesting for me to see it, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's the quality that we can begin can bring to this exploration of motivations.
0: So, there, you've just described a couple of situations where you saw something mildly embarrassing and, and, and treated it with not condemnation, but interest, and that is a way to decondition it. And even humor. Yeah, humor, humor, and, but then, then you're not feeding it as much, right? So it doesn't metastasize through the mind, and that's actually why you're doing the thing now. But so, so for example, with me, and we've talked about this before quite a bit, you know, with my various endeavors, uh, so it's not only that I want to see when greed or self-aggrandizement is coming up in my mind, but also the to, to feed the more positive motivations. to, to oh, giving right, so, me
1: half your salary. <laughs> <laughs> that that would that that do it then. This is not how I thought this was going to go. <laughs> um,
0: how do you feed – so one of the things I like about – I use this phrase when I was talking to Jack – Cornfield, like, one of the things I like about Buddhism is you are kind of taking your better angels to the gym, right? And so in motivation, you know, for I think about for myself, one of the things that I've tried to do, and I don't know if this would fit with your advice, is so I get a lot of feedback, you know, app reviews Mm -hmm. or people hitting me on Twitter or Amazon reviews or whatever. And often I've looked at, you know, when somebody says, oh, you know, this app changed my life, or somebody comes up to me and says that. I look at it as like, oh, well, maybe this app is going to be really successful because this person said that instead right. of actually taking in what well, this person might have been really unhappy. And this work that I've done in conjunction with many other people without whom none of this would have happened. Right. So this group effort, which is satisfying in and of itself and actually should be highlighted as a positive motivation, but is mattering in the individual lives. And to take that in. Not as self-aggrandizing, yes, yes, but as yes. like, oh, yeah, this is why we do this yes, thing. Yes. So I'm using not that I'm the most important person in the world here. I'm not trying to suck up all the oxygen on this question. Yes. But as an example of how to highlight the positive motivation, would that yes. fit with what you're yes, thinking?
1: Absolutely. About? I'll give you another example of an application of that principle, but in a slightly different arena. And so one of the meditations that we do and you know, is on the app as well, I think – is just the meditation on loving kindness. You know, and there's a way of cultivating that particular mindset and feeling of just wishing well for people. One of the conditions for loving kindness to arise is focusing on the good qualities of people. So there's a particular way of paying attention when we're with others that give rise to this feeling of kindness and appreciation. But often our habit is focusing on those qualities in people that irritate us or, you know, that are annoying or just the opposite of focusing on their good qualities. There's often a tendency for the more difficult qualities to jump out of us, and that's what we're relating to. And it is quite interesting and amazing, eh, to see what happens. So just being aware of those tendencies in the mind and then to consciously, you know, if we're with somebody who's irritating us in some way, you know, and if we can remember this and just to take a few moments and just to see whether in that moment or maybe later, okay, well, does this person have any good qualities? <laughs> and almost everybody has some good qualities and making that conscious decision to to focus on that it is quite amazing how that changes how we feel about them you know it's and this is obvious at least conceptually that when we do focus on the good qualities in people it's going to make us feel good we're going to feel uh beneficent towards them. You know? So that's one way of choosing to direct your attention to a particular set of qualities or experiences or circumstances. So in the same thing, when people kind of appreciate what they may have gotten from the app, from the teachings, to see the range of responses that may arise in your mind, but then to choose to focus on exactly what you said. Oh, this is great. This really helped this person live their lives in an easier, better way. So it's not that the other motivations or thoughts are not going to be there, but it's what we choose to emphasize or choose to pay attention to. And that choice is very empowering, to realize that we do have that choice. That's tremendously empowering, because then we're not simply subject to the whims of our habitual conditioning, you know, in terms of how we relate to people. Uh, and what I found is that it actually has made my mind much less judgmental about people, much more easeful and appreciative.
0: Um, yeah. well, I want to take some voicemails from our listeners. We, we gave um, on the podcast, we have <clears throat> this group of very generous people who we call podcast insiders who have actually volunteered to give us feedback every week. And it's actually – it's incredibly helpful and sometimes it hurts to, to read the feedback, but it's really helped me yeah. do a better job and us do a better job on this work. So uh, we've given those folks a chance to ask questions. So I want to get to that um, and then we'll wrap. But um, before I do that, just because, again, I, I'm always trying to hear the questions of the listeners mm-hmm. that they might have – we talked before about liberation, enlightenment. Uh, I, this is a question you and I have discussed many times. But are you, would you call yourself enlightened?
1: <laughs> it's really interesting. That question comes up at different times. And it's, it's taken me a while to figure out the response that feels most comfortable to me. You know, and, but I finally did come up with, with a response. I'm someplace on the spectrum of awakening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's not even an answer. I'm though. on the spectrum. We're all on the spectrum. On that spectrum, right. uh, we are. <laughs> You're further than you were well, when you started. Yes. Yes. Fif- Fifty years. Fifty years ago. These. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, no, yes. fifty-five years ago. Right? You started uh, was, meditating when you were twenty-one or something like okay? that.
0: Uh, Twenty-three. Twenty-three. Okay, so fifty-two uh. years ago. Yes,
1: <laughs> we just celebrated your seventy-fifth birthday. It's a lovely yes. party. Um, I'll I'll tell you why. You you may think that's a bit of a fudge, but it's really not. And the reason um, I feel that's a helpful response is because as soon as people start making a claim of, oh, I'm I'm enlightened or I'm at this stage of enlightenment or whatever, uh, it's just a setup for a huge amount of of projection one way or another without having any basis for assessing the truth of it. Mm. So, I mean, people have all kinds of self, you know, express their understanding of their own stages of enlightenment or awakening or whatever it is, but we have no way of knowing. But just to claim an identity in that Already, so oh, this person's this person's enlightened. So then, maybe there's a lot of deference, or maybe they may say that, and we think oh, they can't be enlightened. They're such a jerk, <laughs> you know. And one way or another, it just sets up a whole field of projection, not based on anything, not based on anything we can verify. So that's why I think just entering into that whole field is not at all helpful. And the Buddha, he actually. There are discourses where he talks about how one should express, you could say, one's understanding or attainment. And he said, uh, and I really appreciate this discourse, to talk about it without reference to a self, but rather rather talking about it in terms of what is understood. Well, of
0: course, though, he
1: called himself the Buddha, right, the, <laughs> the, the awakened one. He's entitled, to. <laughs> <laughs> so these are rules for other people, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think they're really helpful uh, so one one could say you know that in the awakened mind one is free of the view of self, and so one one is really expressing an understanding, not a not a claim, and I think that's a help- it's just a healthier. A healthier approach, and it, then it gets open for interesting discussions, you know, about the teaching uh, rather than about some self self claim. Would
0: would one way to phrase what you're saying be, "Look, you've been out of this for fifty two years, and you're,
1: <laughs> why aren't you further along than you are? <laughs> you're glad you did
0: it." And it's worth doing, and the rest of us should consider walking as far as we can on this path based on your experience.
1: Well, certainly that. But I think one could go even further and talk about the kinds of insights that have come along the way. Okay, this is what I've understood, you know, over all these years of practice. And be sharing not only the, the formal teachings of the Buddha, but one's own experience.
0: Do you notice that greed and hatred and confusion are arriving uh, arising less frequently than they were I don't know a yeah couple, a couple of years ago a couple of decades ago
1: yeah I would say that and and I think maybe even more there is that, but also more aware of them when they arise, you know so the mind gets really more finely attuned to what's right. arising, and also there is there is a Diminishment, you know, of those of those habits which cause suffering, uh, but it's a gradual process. It's not.
0: Yeah. It's. It, I will say, and I don't know if this comment's gonna. Maybe you're immune to this, but <laughs> this comment may bolster any sense of self that remains for you. But I've observed you in many situations up close and uh, working together, te- having being taught by you, being on retreat with you, being at social events with you. And I don't see a lot of agitation. The only the times I see you get a little enervated is when you're tired, or yes. you're you may feel uh, that you're running low on energy, or yes. yeah. you're you're a little bit uncomfortable. But right. it's I don't. I mean, I I'm always on guard for like when am I going to see this dude crack? And I know It doesn't yeah. feel performative to me at yeah. all. It just feels like oh, this is what happened. I mean, yeah. some of it may be. Nature rather than nurture, but I think the practice seems to be because you describe yourself as a younger man as much more edgy, and you describe yourself as a child as prone to wild temper tantrums. So I don't see any of that. Sometimes I see you get tired. I mean, I have this one image in my mind of my wife and I walking into there was some gathering of the Buddhist glitterati here in New York City. It was I think was a it was a fundraiser for Tricycle Magazine, and it was very noisy. And I was walking in, I was saying to my wife, yeah, Joseph's not gonna like this, man. Like they're banging drums in there. And, uh, I walk, we round the corner and we see this big room is filled with all these people around these tables and there's some <laughs> drum banging ceremony going on and you're very tall. And I could see you, I, I elbowed back, I look, look, look. And I could see you standing midway through the room
1: with your eyes closed, <laughs>
0: trying to tune everything out. That's as pretty, as edgy as I see you get.
1: (laughs) Just to clarify, uh, it wasn't so much to tune everything out, but to what? To drop into a less reactive space to it. So, okay, just hearing. But you're quite right. I mean, tiredness (laughs) is definitely, as I said before, with desire. It's like when the energy is low, one is more prone. Uh, But I'll give you another example of kind of... uh, a very apparent uh, easing, you know, of my mind uh, over over the years of practice. In in my earlier years of teaching, I could get into some—I wouldn't say heated, but um, forceful dharma arguments about dharma points that I felt very attached. To my viewpoint, thinking that this is the right viewpoint and people should understand this. And I would get into these arguments with friends, you know, like these dormant discussions, but very, uh, very forceful. You and Sam Harris. uh, Well, (laughs) me and Sam and others. (laughs) And not not limited to Sam. (laughs) Of course, with Sam – It was equally, we shared the dynamic.
0: Well, I just have some image. You guys were flying overseas to a retreat and he cornered you on the airplane. You couldn't get out. Right, from Australia. So it was like a
1: 13-hour. And I see over the years, I am so much lighter in how I hold kind of Dharma views. And just uh, in recent years, I find... I don't. I don't get into these kind of dharma arguments. We're going to be having discussions and you know presenting various viewpoints. But I've really let go of attachment to my view, uh, and that feels it's so much more relaxing, you know, and more fun. You know. Well, I wrote a book that I recommend people
0: read called One Dharma, in which you. Mm-hmm. I. It, it seems like in some ways the culmination of this effort to relax mm-hmm. around yes. saying, look, they're. You know, so. One of the phrases I like to use is once you start talking about enlightenment, you're in an argument because there's all these different – the Buddhist schools have these different ways to talk about this yes. and to view the concepts cha- uh, um, are contradictory in some ways. And you wrote this book, One Dharma, which I really loved, which was a, about trying to sort of walk us through how you've reconciled yes, these yes. – these different views. Yes, yeah. Okay, so enough for me. Um, I think we have a little time to take a few. How's your energy level now?
1: You'll know when I start getting grumpy. You'll know. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go
0: bang some (laughs) drums in the corner. Uh, Do you mind putting these headphones on so we can hear the question? All right, let's do
2: voicemail number one. Hi there. This is Liz from New York City. I'm a podcast insider, and I'm very grateful that you took my voicemail. So my question is about my informal mindfulness practice. I worry I'm practicing mindfulness techniques too much off the cushion and that I'm missing the present moment. For example, when I notice my mind wandering when walking, I'll attend to the feeling of having feet. And when I notice I'm judging others on the subway, I switch my attention to watching my natural breath. It feels like I'm making these transitions dozens of times a day and the process of catching myself all day long can be exhausting. Is this constant movement from recognizing suffering and attending to something more skillful actually pulling me out of the moment or is this the practice thank you so much and thank you for everything you do dan you are an inspiration and a positive influence on myself and on millions of others
0: see she was talking about Uh, me not you there uh, i I noticed
1: (laughs) i'll try not to take it personally (laughs) uh so
0: what do you think that's a really interesting question Yeah, very interesting
1: So, I think that uh, one of the causes of p- perhaps the mindfulness fatigue, you know, that was being described was the sense of uh, redirecting the attention to something else. So, you know, kind of lost in thought and then, okay, let me come back to the breath. Or let me come back to this. or And so, Moving the attention back to something that, if one is doing that very frequently during the day, I could, I could imagine it feeling tiring. As so, uh, this is the, this is a subtle difference, I think. But it's what came to mind as I was listening to the question, and it would be an interesting exploration. Is when one finds the mind is wandering and one has awakened from it, as we were talking about earlier, instead of the mind jumping back to some other object of meditation to actually rest in the awareness of the awareness, that's like we've been lost in a thought, and then all of a sudden we wake up, we don't have to move away from that moment of having awakened of of being awake, and then we're just open to whatever's arising naturally in that moment. And so first we might become aware, and I would emphasize this, to become aware of the sense of having awakened from being lost, just as we were talking earlier. But then to really be relaxed and simply to be open to whatever is being known, and it might be just seeing. You know, we we wake up from being lost and we're walking down the street, and then we're just back, in the whole field of what's being seen or maybe it's the sound but without the sense of directing the mind to anything in particular but rather being more receptive to whatever is presenting itself. And I think that might take that edge of effort away from those moments of of reconnecting and we are reconnecting with being present without any choice. It's, It's a choiceless open awareness to whatever's uh, most obvious in that moment, so that can that can get very useful it 's just like going from being asleep in the thought to being aware without having to do anything specifically, just to rest in the awareness and notice what 's being known sometimes the phrase it 's already here mm-hmm. yeah that in in terms of the awareness, yes. Yeah, that that can just be the reminder to relax into that receptivity.
0: uh, I initially heard that phrase as, it's all right here. (laughs) You could also say as, it's all right here. (laughs) All of them accurate. Uh I give you an A. (laughs) Let's do voicemail number two.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Dan. I'm calling from Washington, D.C. I'm one of your podcast insiders. Um, and I wanted to ask about this concept of spaciousness. I hear it a lot um, in your podcast and in different talks about mindfulness and meditation. And I can understand it on a conceptual or intellectual level, but I don't know experientially if, if I know what is meant by that. Um, I don't know that, you know, I get the idea that you sort of see your. The sky is your mind, and the clouds uh, are your thoughts. Are clouds that pass by? But I find myself focusing so much on that analogy that that it feels very forced, and I don't know if the spaciousness is what it feels like. You know, to know that I'm feeling spaciousness in my practice when I sit, Um, and I don't know. Does it vary from person to person? Is is spaciousness for me going to be different than spaciousness for you or for somebody else? and I guess, you know, is the, is, the, is the presence or the lack thereof of this feeling of spaciousness in my practice a, a sort of sign or a marker of where I am in the practice? Does, does it come with more practice, um, understanding more from an experience standpoint than an intellectual standpoint? Um, I've been just practicing for just over a year now, and um, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And I appreciate everything, as everyone says. I cannot go under, understand how much it, this has meant to me in my life, and um, how valuable this has—the practice of meditation and being able to listen to the guidance—and everything has meant for me. So, um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and I'll keep on listening. Thanks. <laughs> Bye now.
0: <laughs> Thanks for the question
1: and the kind words. Now, somebody who can actually <laughs> answer it. Just. Okay, so there was a lot in that question. This, this could be a whole hour Dharma talk, which it won't be. Uh, so, sort of interesting question. First, to just address the question of how I might uh, taste the experience of spaciousness, you know, to get some sense of, okay, what's being referred to by this word. I think one of the easiest ways... To settle into that feeling is through uh, meditative listening, just using sound as an object of meditation. So it's just to sit back and be very open and simply let sounds appear and disappear, you know, in in the awareness. Uh, that creates a feeling of spaciousness because it's very obvious. We don't have to be doing anything in order to hear, right? If, if our ears are working and sounds are in the environment, they're going to be heard. So because it doesn't take any particular effort to know the sound, to know that we're hearing, it's actually quite easy to relax just into that quality of openness or spaciousness of mind and the image of the sky, I think, can be a good one. Uh, we just settle back and the sounds are rising and passing. Uh, and it's generally easier with sound than with thought because, for the most part, sounds, unless they're exceedingly unpleasant or exceedingly pleasant, it's pretty easy to be quite neutral with regard to hearing. You know, it's just a sound coming and going and without a lot of reactivity in the mind. And so we could understand spaciousness as being the lack of reactivity.
0: Can I just say something mm-hmm. that I think may amplify the no? point? Uh, I think this I, – I, I might have just made this up myself. But after hearing you talk about the effortlessness of awareness – um you sometimes will say move you know just wave right. your hand slowly from one side to the other how much effort is there in knowing the sensation right. i will actually use that in my practice as a little mantra especially as like i notice maybe i'm leaning in too yes. hard trying too hard just effortlessness and then you see like god this right. is just happening i all this knowing of he- hearing or feeling or whatever just happening the the me feeling is just another thing arising in this soup, um, and that is – that really makes me feel spacious. Yeah,
1: no, I think that, that that's another good example and something that uh, I do like pointing out and people find it pretty easy to, to understand you know, how a simple movement uh, can be known you know, without, without any big effort. We're just moving our arms and feeling the movement. Uh, so that 's that would be another way of dropping into that feeling of spaciousness so there's there there are different levels of exploring what spaciousness means. so what we 're talking about is one level uh, of just dropping back into the mind space of being aware of something that 's really simple and easeful to be aware of, like sound or like the simple movement you know, of our arm. Um, but on a deeper or a fuller understanding of spaciousness, it really has to do with what I just mentioned, the non-reactivity of mind. And so it's possible to be spacious in a certain way even when the mind is cluttered, if we, if we are mindful of the cluttered mind. So, okay, we're seeing all these thoughts are going through, and on the surface it might seem um, I'm a long way from spaciousness. But if, in fact, we understand spaciousness as meaning just non-reactivity, then we could be non-reactive to whatever's arising. What We could be non-reactive to a perceived lack of spaciousness. <laughs> It's already here. It's already here, and, and but that we we often miss that because the mind can be uh, focusing on the content of what's arising, you know, or the fact, for example, that there are a lot of thoughts which are carrying us away, rather than focusing on how we're relating to what's arising. That is, are we caught up in it? Are we aversive to it? Are we just being with all the thoughts as if they're sounds passing through. So how we're relating to whatever's happening in a way is a more significant measure of spaciousness than a mind free of thought, which is its own, that's its own feeling of spaciousness, but it's not limited to that. And so I think we can really practice getting a taste or a feel for a spacious mind by focusing on the relationship to whatever's happening and, and practicing as best we can the non-reactive
4: uh,
1: being with whatever it is. Uh, and so this is one of the uh, benefits, one of the tools that we've talked about, you know, I think you use in your own practice at times, is that tool of mental noting, where we simply make a, a simple mental note or label of whatever it is, a hearing, thinking Seeing an image, pain. You know, we we're, were just noting in a very gentle, whispering kind of way in our mind, just acknowledging, "Oh, there's this, there's this, there's this." That mental noting really is a is a methodology for dropping into that non reactive spaciousness of mind. So thinking, thinking, thinking. When we're doing that. We're not being tossed about by our thoughts, but it doesn't mean the thoughts aren't there. Thank you for answering those questions. Thank you to the insiders for asking the
0: questions. Uh, this is the point in the show where I talk about how great it was to have you here as a guest. I always mean it when I say that, um, but I mean it especially this time. I would say to, you know, it, it's come become, I hope not I hope not something people feel they have to say when they leave these voicemails, but people will say, you know, thank you for what you're doing or whatever. If, listeners, you appreciate what I'm doing, this is the guy who helped me do it and continues to help me do it. So I'm very grateful to you on many levels, not just for finally coming on the podcast, but for being comprehensively awesome. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, big thank you to Joseph. A couple reminders. Uh, I'll repeat myself from the beginning of the show. Uh, We've got a bonus meditation from Joseph coming up in a few days that will land in your podcast feed Uh, Another is don't forget that event I'm doing. If you're in the New York City area or if you feel like traveling, December 5th, it's a Thursday night. Um, Registration is now open. Oh, I also want to mention that my friend Jeff Warren, uh, with whom I wrote the book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, he's hosting another Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics retreat, which is going to be November 22nd through 24th. It's in North Carolina. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. If you like what we're doing, please share on Twitter or text the episode to your friends or a group of friends. It's a great way to help us grow and we're always looking to do that. As always, thanks to the team, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, and Mike Dubusky, who records all of my intros and outros when I do them on Saturday mornings and I totally derail him from doing his regular work. Say, Thank you, Mike. Um, I will see you uh, in a couple days with Joseph's Meditation and then after that uh, the following Wednesday. Bye. If you like 10% happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
5: If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles business Amex card.